It was October 10th, 2009, and it wasn't a particularly windy day, but I needed to fly a kite. I needed to fly a kite that day because flying kites was the first date that my wife and I had ever had, I think even before we even realized it was really a date at the time. Uh, And I needed to fly a kite this particular day because this time we were going on that date again, but now a ring was involved. Uh, I really had no real interest in flying a kite, uh, but my goal was to get uh, my kite as far away from her kite as possible. I know it's good science for a marriage to come, but uh, get it as far away as possible from her in this field and crash land it. Uh, so I did that. It crash landed. I said, hey, Kels, come see this. Now, her kite is like 500 feet in the air at this point. She's worked really hard to get it up there. Uh, and so she says, this better not be some kind of dumb plant. Uh, to her uh, credit, I am kind of a, a, a naturist. I do like plants and stuff. It very well could have been a dumb plant, but it wasn't. Uh, and my kite happened to ju- just happened to land on uh, a note uh, expressing my love for her and my desire to spend my life with her, you know, blah, 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 all that good stuff. Uh, and she looked up from the note, uh, and there I was down on one knee. Uh, last week, we began a new series, Grammar of Victory, looking at the imperatives of the book of Revelation. If you missed last week, I would really encourage you uh, to go to our website, go to our podcast, and listen to that sermon because it really sets up a lot of what we're going to be looking at for the next six weeks. Uh, but my, the reason I bring up this proposal story is because our imperative this morning is the word come. Uh, it's a call to come and see what God is doing. Uh, if Kelsey in that moment had known what awaited her when I told her, hey, come see this, that it wasn't a dumb plant, but it was a, a life-changing decision for the both of us, I don't think that she would have hesitated. At least I hope that she wouldn't have hesitated. But God's call to us this morning is much the same. And I think that if we knew what God is calling us to, calling to show us, calling to come be a part of, then we wouldn't hesitate to be there. We're looking at this series, and I know grammar is uh, something that you love to talk about, especially in church, but it's about so much more than just these words. But these words frame up uh, what, a bunch of encouragements for us as the church. As we look at the world around us and we find us in the midst of uh, chaos and conflict and compromise, these words encourage us with what God is continuing to do. These imperatives we talked about last week are command words. They're bossy words. They're parenting words. These are the words that say, go to your room or eat your dinner or come here, come, come be a part of this. But they're not only command words. These words can also be suggestions or instructions or, as we see this morning, invitations. This imperative that we see this morning, this word, command, this word come, is an invitation, and invitations are special. Uh, you get a piece of uh, mail in, the, in the, your mailbox, and it says you are invited to celebrate the grand opening of this really exclusive premier restaurant. Or you are invited by Mr. and Mrs. Smith, they invite you to come to the marriage of their daughter. You know, invitations are special. To be invited is to be honored. And so this morning we see this invitation not from a hand-addressed envelope, but from the Word of God. The invitation found in this word, come, as in come up here, come and see. Revelation 4.1, we see this command. It's spoken to John as he writes this revelation of Jesus and from Jesus. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open to heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what, may, what must take place after this. Now, not just in Revelation, but all throughout Scripture, this word come, this call to come, is a very important imperative. It's used in Revelation 12 different times. It's the most Im, Im, used imperative in Revelation. 
But like I said, this invitation to come is not just relevant in Revelation, but it mirrors what Jesus often told people to do in his earthly ministry. As Jesus spoke to those who had become his first disciples, he said, come and follow me. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, speaking to the crowds around him, looking for spiritual health and leadership and someone to follow in this world of false religious leaders, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The call to come up depicts a special relationship with God. When Jesus was in his earthly ministry, needing moments of solitude to recharge and spend time in prayer with his father, he is described as going up on a hill to do so. Moses, when he received the Ten Commandments, was called up to come up on Mount Sinai to receive them. And when a traveler was going to Jerusalem, uh, as it was God's dwelling place on earth, it didn't matter where they were coming from, it was always said they were traveling up to Jerusalem. The call to come up is the call to come closer to God. And this invitation to come and come up and come and see that we're issued this morning is no different. It's a call to come closer to God. In this invitation we see this morning, God is pulling back the veil. He is revealing the behind the scenes of his heavenly throne room, this heavenly worship. And when we see a vision of that, it often dwarfs the things that we're experiencing in our own world. Again, Revelation 4 verse 1 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door, standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by you they were created and have their being. We witness this moment of this, this heavenly worship before the throne, and in so doing, God is, like I said, pulling back the veil on the heavenly throne room. As I thought about this, I thought about an experience I had uh, this past February uh, at a preaching and teaching convention I go to in my alma mater, Ozark Christian College. And I love this convention. It's a week of great workshops and conferences and sermons. Uh, but it also, as a preacher, is kind of hard to kind of fit in times to write my sermon. And so I was spending some kind of downtime in the library there working on uh, this sermon, this kind of calm, quiet, serene environment to nurture study and reading. And then somebody in a back room kind of off the library lets out this, woo, woo, woo. And I thought, what is going on? 
It's kind of like that moment where you're at a funeral and somebody like in the lobby out there is like lets out this boisterous laugh. And it's just out of place for the situation happening. And I thought when that happened to myself, I thought, you know, how funny it is that moments like this can be when we fail to notice what's going on behind the scenes. And I think the same is true when it comes before this, this moment as we come before the throne of God. How silly all of the things that we often concern ourselves with seem in light of what's truly happening. And yet how petty in view of the throne of God are our worship wars, our worries, our fights and squabbles and tiffs when we are invited to come behind the scenes of this heavenly worship in Revelation 4. And it made me ask the question, if we were invited to see behind the veil, if we were invited to see what God sees, how would that change our lives? How would that change the way that we live, the way that we interact with each other, the ways that we worship? That's what this imperative to come is really all about. God is inviting us to come before the throne in true worship. And he's saying, come up here and get a better look. Come up here and see something bigger than yourself. And I think there are three ways that we see God invite us to become a part of this, to see something bigger than ourselves with this invitation to come. The first is we see that He comes, we're invited to, to come and worship. Now, for many of us, when we hear the word worship, we think of music. But worship is about more, so much more than just singing. Worship is, among many other things, our opportunity to give admiration to God. That's what we see happening in this moment. We see these creatures, we see the host of heaven worshiping Him in admiration because of His holiness. They say, holy, holy, holy is, are you Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. To be holy is to be set apart, and that's exactly what God is. We worship God because He is distinct from us. He is set apart from the things that we plague ourselves with, the evil and sin and de decay and death that we find ourselves surrounded with. He is set apart in that He is not created, and yet He is creator, that there will never be a time when God has not existed and will not exist. And worship allows us to come and see and admire God for who He is and what He is doing. That in the midst of everything going on around us, we can admire Him because of His very character. We also see, though, that worship involves something of us, that it's, it's more than just uh, something that we do in admiration. It's something that we do with our lives. We submit. You might notice that one word as we read through this, these 11 verses leaps off the page over and over again. It's the word throne. It's a key word in this chapter. We see it 14 times. It's really a key, book in the entire, a key word in the entire book of Revelation. 46 times we see God seated on his throne. Because the message of Revelation is that no matter what may be happening in our world, no matter how bad things might seem and might look, God is on his throne and God is in control. We also have to notice, like I've said before, that this is a throne and not a love seat. Revelation invites each and every one of us to come and see and witness who is on the throne, and it's not us. And so without submission, worship becomes nothing. Worship is, submission is vitally important to the way that we worship. That if Jesus is not our Lord, if Jesus is not our master, then we're not worshiping. And if we live our lives trying to push God off the throne, insisting that we know better, then we're not worshiping. If we're not casting our crowns and our glory at the feet of God, then we're not worshiping. If worship is about 
us, then it's not worship. God calls us to come and he invites us to see something bigger than ourselves and he asks us to do it in the ways that we admire and submit and worship him. I heard a story uh, recently, uh, soon after the completion of Disney World. I never realized this, but Walt Disney actually died while Disney World was being built. And soon after its completion, one of the workers at the dedication service said, you know, isn't it too bad that Walt didn't live to see this? Mike Vance, the creative director of Disney Studios at the time, standing nearby, simply replied, he did see it. That's why it's here. And I think Revelation, in much the same way, challenges us to come and see something bigger than ourselves. It challenges us to move from uh, the, ways, the, the plane on which we operate, that with its sins and struggles, to see a glimpse of God in all of His glory, and to move us from where we are to where He wants us to be, to where we can go. This call is so much more than just an invitation to worship. It's also a call to see things in a new way. God says, come up here and I will show you. And this is the second way that we are invited to come, that we are invited to come and witness. John is called into this vision, and it's a vision of victory. Like I said last week, as John is writing to these seven churches struggling with conflict and compromise, what they need is a bigger picture of Jesus. And so John reveals that to them. It's this vision of victory that no matter what they're facing, God is going to win. That's one of the reasons I've named the series The Grammar of Victory. It's all about God's victory throughout this book. As I see this vision, I was reminded of that quote last week from Dr. Randy Harris where he said, Revelation kind of be summed up in three parts. God's team wins. You get to pick a team. Don't be stupid. You know, it would be stupid not to pick the team that you know is going to win. And so driving the hope of Revelation is knowing that God wins. That no matter what cultures and countries and spiritual forces might rise up, God is always on the throne. He is always in control. And so God calls us to come and simply witness the victory. But I also notice that from down here, it doesn't often look like God's team is winning. We witness the evil around us. We witness murder and human trafficking and the mocking of truth and the, the, the execution and persecution of fellow Christians. And it gets so bad, we want to cry out with the, the martyrs of Revelation 6.10, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? In other words, how long are you going to wait until we see the victory? How long are you going to wait until we get to see all the wrongs made right? And I think at times as we wrestle with what God is doing and why he's waiting to bring this victory, it's encouraging to remember stories like that of Elisha. Uh, Elisha was an Old Testament prophet, and I mentioned last week that one of the reasons that we often misunderstand Revelation or fail to understand parts of it is we don't know our Old Testaments. And in Elisha, we see one of these examples. He's this Old Testament prophet living in a time where evil kings are ruling the nation of Israel, a time where spiritual victory was bleak. And it's one of these times that the king of Aram, another country, was trying to wage war uh, against Israel. But every time he goes to attack Israel, he's, he's spent all of his time coming up with these war plans, these detailed tactics, and every time he comes to, to Israel only to find themselves prepared to defend against him. Soon he finds out from his commanders that it is Elisha, this prophet, that is warning the king of Israel of these impending attacks. And so this is what the king of Aram says to his men in 2 Kings 6.13. 
He says, go find out where Elisha is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. Then the king sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God, when Elisha's servant, got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots that surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, Elisha answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. We see this scene playing out, this situation that seemed bleak for Israel in Elisha's day. They were outnumbered, they were outgunned, they were overpowered. And when he receives this vision, though, when the veil was pulled back and they got to see what God is doing behind the scenes, it became clear that God would have the victory. Paul encourages us in the same way to have this same vision in Ephesians 1.18. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, may know the hope that you have been called to. We have this hope that we might see things from God's perspective. But as he calls us to come and witness, we see the victory even in the dark times. Because we know where to focus our eyes. We know to focus our eyes on the throne. It reminded me of the story of Florence Chadwick. Florence Chadwick is a female swimmer. In 1952, she decided that she was going to try to swim the 26 miles between the Catalina Islands and the California coastline. She had a great resume under her belt. She had already swum uh, the English Channel there and back. And so she set out to accomplish this next challenge, but it was less than ideal circumstances. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her, but yet still she swam for 15 hours. At one point, she was begging to be taken out of the water, feeling overwhelmed, and her mother, who was one of the boats next to her, kept encouraging her with how close she was. She told her she could make it, but finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and had to be pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat and recovered a little bit that she was told that she was less than half a mile away from completing her goal. At the news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months later, she tried again. This time it was different. The same thick fog set in, but she made it because she said she kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind while she swam. She kept her eye on that destination. And I think Revelation does much the same for us. Revelation calls us to come and witness this vision of victory so that we might persevere as we await God's final victory. Because God is patient, but there will come a day when his judgment will come and his name and his people will be vindicated. And his enemies will be destroyed. And it's in this moment of victory that we will receive this call to come. But the call to come comes with a call to action. What will we do when we are called to come? And this call to action is the final way that God invites us to come and see something bigger than ourselves. That we are invited to come and wed. As Revelation is winding down and God's ultimate redemption is coming with the new heavens and the new earth. We see one final invitation to come. Revelation 21.9 says, One of the seven angels who had been, had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, 
Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We're called not just to come to see what God is doing, but we're called to come to be joined with what God is doing. Joined in worship and joined in witnessing and joined in this wedding to Christ. In Ephesians 5, we're told that the church is the bride of Christ. Which tells us that if we want to be a part of Christ, then we have to be a part of His church. Not only a part, but we have to change the way that we think about the church. Husbands, if someone speaks ill of your bride, you know what you're going to do. What do you think Jesus will do if we talk bad about His? For all of her faults, the church is beautiful because Christ laid down his life for her. And we have the opportunity to answer the call to come be a part of that. That in this victory, as we see this worship occurring before the throne and we witness what God is doing, we have the opportunity not just to be observers of that, but partners in that, to join in what he is doing, to become a part of his church, to see his mission made known throughout the world. To see Jesus made known. We've been called to come and see what God is doing. But I know often as we receive this call, we think, well, how can we do that? We're called to come, but God is out there and we're down here and we're down in the muck and the mire and the sin and the suffering. How could we ever hope to get up to Him? But here's the good news of this morning. That we can go up to God because He first came down to us. God looked down and saw what we had done to ourselves. Jesus saw us as sheep without a shepherd, and he says to his father, you know, we agreed long ago that something could be done about this. And so he came down, and he lived as we lived, and he lived in the muck and the mire, and he came and he saw our deformities and our crumbling marriages and the inequality around us and the suffering and the poverty, and he experienced all of this. He witnessed all of it, not from on high, but among us. We see him experience the death of his friend Lazarus. And when his friend died, they implored him, Lord, come and see. And when Jesus saw, he wept. Because he knew that this was not what we were created to be. Jesus, broken by this experience, did the only thing that could to be done. He went to the cross and he died for our sins. And three days later, he came out of the tomb so that he could tell us, come to me. And that invitation that Jesus says, come to me, is as real today as it was back then. That every one of us have the opportunity to come and be a part of what God is doing. This morning, maybe for you, that means just asking for some prayer. Well, I'll be up here in a little bit. Some of our elders are in the back. They would love to pray with you. Maybe you're just having a hard time. You feel like you're losing the battle, having a hard time envisioning the victory, and you need to be encouraged. We'd love to do that for you. Maybe for some of you, this isn't coming to Christ for the first time. You made that decision a long time ago to make him Lord. Maybe it's a a decision to dedicate yourself to that mission, to come and see and be joined in what he is doing. Maybe for you it is coming to acknowledge Christ as King for the first time. To give your life to Him as Lord and Master. We know whose team wins. And so maybe this is an opportunity to make sure you're on the right team. One of God's favorite words, I think, is come. Because God is a God who invites. 
And God is a God who calls. And God is a God who can pull back the veil so that we can worship and witness and be joined in what he is doing. He came for us. Will we go to him? Let's pray. Father God, what an encouragement this book of Revelation is to us. I know we often complicate it, wondering what all the symbols and signs and things are, and maybe even get nervous or anxious about it. But as we live in a world facing conflict and compromise, and we look and see the chaos around us, and maybe sometimes feel like we're losing this battle, God, we are assured that you have the ultimate victory. God, my prayer is that we would be encouraged by this. And as we are called to come and be a part of that, that we can worship you without reservations because of the victory that you hold. That we see your throne room in heaven and this majesty and splendor and glory that surrounds it, and we get to be a part of that. God, I pray that as we witness this, that we can see with eyes that only you can provide for us the victory that you have, and that we be joined in this work with you to be your church carrying out this mission that you have given us to see, may, to see your son made known. We thank you for Jesus, that he did not sit far off in an ivory tower, but came to be a part of his creation. And he would walk where we walked and empathize with our weaknesses to be this great high priest so that we know that you know what it is like. God, we thank you for Jesus, that we have the life that he lives because of the resurrection and because of the cross. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you.